welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Dr. Robert Spoboda. He is the first Westerner ever to graduate from a college of Ayurveda. The author of 12 books, including one discussing his unique experiences with his mentor and tantric master, the Aghori Vimalanda. <laughs> Vimalanda Nanda. Dr. Svoboda was born in Texas in 1953 and in 1972, under the age of 20, earned a Bachelor of Science from the University of Oklahoma in Chemistry. After being richly initiated into the Pokat tribe of northern Kenya as the first white member in 1973, he lived predominantly between 1973 and 1986 in India, where he received a Bachelor of Ayurvedic Medicine and Surgery from the University of Pune. The Aghori also owned thoroughbred racehorses and Dr. Svoboda served as his authorised racing agent at the Royal Western India Turf Club in Mumbai during this time. So quite a colourful life. In the years since 1986, Dr. Svoboda has travelled and taught extensively on Ayurveda, Jyotish and Tantra, also spending three months a year generally in India. He speaks fluent Hindi, Hindi amongst other languages, and it's an incredible honour and pleasure to welcome the Dr. Robert Svoboda to our podcast today at Keenan Yoga. So welcome Dr. Svoboda to the Keenan Yoga podcast. Nice to have you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, we just, uh, this, this podcast today is going to be an introduction to Ayurveda and there's no one better to do that than the doctor here. So um, we're just going to assume that you know nothing and we're going to talk on an introductory level around the topic of Ayurveda. So uh, doctor, would you just give us a basic a kind of a background to Ayurveda and why why it might be relevant to our practices or why why we want, need to take notice of this. Ayurveda is a Sanskrit word that means the science of life. Though that word could be interpreted also mean to mean the lore of longevity or the art of living. Sanskrit is a very fluid language. It's kind of the opposite of English. In English, we have a large number of words that mean very specific things. And in Sanskrit, you have a smaller number of words that can mean many, many things according to the context. Ayu or Ayur means life. And Veda comes from a root that means to know. So the Vedas, the Vedas are the ancient books of knowledge, of wisdom, that are 4,000 years old, probably in the form that they are currently, maybe older. So there are, there are, the, the, and these are, uh, comp, uh, 
compilations of knowledge that was collected much earlier that was that has been part of of the of 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 the uh, legacy of, of the Indian subcontinent from thousands of years before that, but that were that were put into their current form about four thousand years ago. And at that time, of course, as long as as long as in my opinion there have been human societies, there has been the awareness that occasionally humans will become unwell. And when you become unwell, you either have to take care of yourself and often that is possible and certainly everyone should be doing the best that they can to take care of himself or herself. But it's also the case that often you won't know how to do that and 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 who knows how long ago it was the case, but I'm sure that that many, many thousands of years ago, people were already specializing and there were always going to be people who would specialize in trying to help other people who were not well become well again. So well before this, this 4,000 years ago when the Vedas were standardized, there was in every human society some kind of understanding of how to assist someone who was not well to become well again. And very likely, in fact, and the evidence that there is in the Vedas suggests that this is true, that before about 2,500 years ago, this in India, as is still the case in places like South America, or some parts of South America, that very likely this was sort of a shamanic medical system. You would go to a man or woman of power and they would, they would, they would understand in themselves, they they would feel the resonance of where the prana or chi, the life force was not moving properly in your body and your mind, and your emotions, and your spirit. And then using a verbal formula, uh, in Sanskrit they call it a mantra, or perhaps using some sort of ritual, and perhaps using a, 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 a root, or a leaf, or some other kind of object that could act as a vehicle for that that activated energy that they were trying to provide to you to assist your own energy to get rebalanced, there would be a, 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 a ritual performed that would assist you to get rid of whatever the bad energy was and bring good energy back into your system. And, 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 even in India, this system worked fairly well as long as people were well aligned with the natural environment. But of course, as we see today, human beings do not always align themselves well with the natural environment. And there came a point in India, it happened about 3,000 years ago, where people started to become seriously focused 
on organizing cities and towns where there were lots of humans living in association with one another. And there are benefits to living in association with one another because humans are, we have been able to do all the things that we do because we have learned to cooperate purposefully with one another. Otherwise, we're not particularly impressive animals. We don't have nice claws. We don't have big teeth. We all have very little hair. Uh, we don't have gi big giant muscles. Uh, it, all sorts of predators and even things that are not predators like uh, elephants, horses, mm. and bulls uh, can, can uh, eliminate us very easily. But when humans get together and cooperate, then they can do many other things. And just to clarify, at that time, they were, they were using the whole body as the kind of, of what to be treated, not just treating the mind or the treating the, some ailment of the physical body. They were addressing the whole person, right? Well, back at that, kind, back at that time, it, it would appear that they were, people were not drawing a strong distinction Right. Between the body, the mind, and the spirit. It was regarded as much more of a continuum. In the same way that um, you perhaps know that there is a, there continues to be a raging debate in the world of sound recording about whether it is superior to employ a digital approach, which slices everything into tiny pieces, or an analog approach, which of course is much closer to the way that our own organisms uh, process sound. So, so the, the, the back before Ayurveda in its current form, people were not really using their analytical minds to any, to any degree, to any sort of the degree that we use them today. They were much, they were much more analog. They were reacting to things in their environment. They were, they were de determining uh, uh, courses of action and proceeding ahead with them, but without going into minutiae and, and trying, to, trying to chop everything into understandable bits. But, but the more that people got together and started working together, the more they had to divide things into small understandable bits because there were other humans who were around and I had to communicate with these other humans. And when I communicated, I had to be much more specific so the other humans could understand what I was trying to do. And then there would be just start, did you mean X or did you mean Y? And I would say, well, I meant Y. And then someone would say, do you mean Y number one or do you mean Y number two? And I would say, I would mean, actually mean Y number two B and then they would say, do you mean Y2B that would it be activated in the morning or Y2B that would be activated later at night? And I would say, well, actually in the midday. So the, before that, it was much more like X or Y. Mm, y, okay. And you think that's a question, that's a question of numbers, that, that, that kind of delving into specifying and categorizing has come due to sheer numbers, right? Because people have always been living in tribes of some variety, but the, the kind of polis, the modern the kind of conglomerates have, have made us compartmentalize. I would put it to you that it very much has to do with numbers. And part of that, of course, I don't want to get 
too far away from mm -hmm. my uh, train of thought, but part of this has has very much to do with a concept called Dunbar's numbers. Have you are you no, familiar no, no, with Dunbar's no, 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 numbers? No. Dunbar, I forget who Dunbar was, but Dunbar was a uh, was a scientist who studied physiologically how primates, you and I are primates, apes are primates, monkeys are primates, how primates and all primates have complicated social structures. He, he, he looked into the brains of different species of primates and he discovered that he could determine according to brain structure and how much of the brain was dedicated to social interaction. He could discover how many members in a society of primates, apes, monkeys, or humans, how many members could meaningfully know and interact right. with one another. And for humans, it turns out to be an average of about 150, goes from 120 to 180. Right. And therefore, it really is no coincidence that the average size village in, the, in most of the world is about 150 people because you really can't know more than on an ongoing basis and really say that you, you can identify somebody, but you can't really know not just them, but their place in the social structure and who their relatives are and who their relatives are interacting with. This is a lot of stuff to keep in your head and you can't know more, more than about 150 people. But what happens if you are living in a town, is there's going to be more than 150 people. So how are you going to interact with one another? Well, then it starts, then you really, because of the, mm. the number, you have to start thinking in numbers. Mm. So it's, it's almost even not that people set out to, wow, we're going to start enumerating things, but you had to start enumerating things because you couldn't keep it in your analog, your non-digital awareness anymore. So when people started to cooperate in bigger groups, and initially it would be more like not everybody joined together in a, in a megacity, but it was one group of 150 and another group and another group and another group, they would, they would join together and form a tribe. And there would be four clans in the tribe, each of 150, and the tribe would be of 600. And then two or three tribes would get together and they would say, why don't we cooperate? And so, okay, we'll have representatives and these representatives will interact. The other tribe members will be out doing whatever they're doing, but we will be interacting. And so, and it, as the human structures became bigger, humans had to spend more time in association with one another so that they could communicate. The problem, of course, with that is that when you are communicating good things, you're communicating bad things also. As we've been seeing during the pandemic, being in close proximity assists us to co cooperate with one another. It also facilitates the spread of this particular of, of the COVID pathogen. So people started living in association with one another. People started living with their domestic animals and, and, and the microbiomes of all these different uh, animals started to interact with one another. 
And some of those bacteria and viruses were nice, but microbes, and they behaved properly, and they played together well, and others were pathogenic, and they were not so nice. And people were living together in areas that, of course, were not meant to have so many people living in the same space. And that meant there was a lot of waste being produced, human waste, animal waste, all kinds of all kinds of potentially uh, deleterious material was accumulating, and there was not there there weren't good ways to get rid of all that material, and so um, people started to we as humans always mirror what's happening in our environments, and so people started to because and they had become more sedentary because if you're living out in the countryside somewhere, you have to be moving around the time, all the time. You need some water? Ah, well, you have to go down to the river to get some water. Whereas in the city, you hire someone to go get water for you. So you're not moving around. And the, you become more sedentary. There are, there's, you're not eating as well because the food, whereas you're not, you're not collecting mm. the food. You're not a hunter-gatherer anymore. You're not directly producing the food. So-and-so is bringing you the food. Is it good food? Is it spoiled? Uh, is there enough of it? Is it of good quality? Is it agreeable to you? All these questions are there. So things started to change. In, in, in previously, you had been living in the context of nature. Your surroundings were natural. And working together with nature made it more straightforward to bring you back into alignment with nature, which is what, which is what health is all about. We are, as humans, we focus a lot on our individual selves. And we like, we like to think about the fact that we are an independent species and we have gone out and conquered the world. And how great is that? As it turns out, 80%, four out of every five species on Earth, are parasites. So while we have been congratulating ourselves for being so clever, various parasitical things have been very happy that we have been focused on how great we are because it makes it easy, easier for them to parasitize us. So the more we are together and the more that there are, is waste accumulating, the more we're not eating properly, the further away we get from the natural environment, the easier it is for parasites to influence us. And so about 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, over a period of time, there was a big change in Ayurveda, which previously had been a realign you with nature, shamanic medical system, and then shifted to become more of an empirical medical system where you start to use numbers and you start to look much more quality, uh, much more carefully at qualities. So now you have to think about, do I want my patient to be eating things that are going to make him or her cooler or warmer? Do I want to add to the body mass? Do I want to reduce it? Do, do I want to dry out the body or do I want to, to, to make it more moist and more oily? 
So now, now it became much more a matter of, and, and at the same time, the patient was, is not responding as well because there's not that alignment with the natural world and the natural flow of the life force. And now we have to have extra help. So now we have to take the energy from plants and from minerals and from animals, and we have to get those energies into the body and we have to add special qualities and special substances to get the body to respond because the body now is not responding because it no longer is as aligned with the natural world as it should be. And that's how Ayurveda gained the form in which it is, is existing today. So you think originally it would have been okay just to say a mantra and you would have been realigned with the universe, that it was just simply an energetic alignment originally. We wouldn't need any other treatment. I'm sure that in the past, you sometimes would need other treatment also, because, of course, everyone has to die. Mm. And since everyone has to die, you have to die of something. Mm. And to die of something means y your organism has to fail to be able to keep itself together. And, and there is your, your, the, the behind part of your brain, your hind brain, uh, it sometimes is called your reptile brain because reptiles are very simple organisms. They're out looking for food. They're out occasionally, once a year or so probably, they are out looking for someone to mate with. But otherwise, they are interested in staying alive because if you can't stay alive, then you cannot mate. And that's why you need to eat to stay alive. So that the, there is always a part of everyone who is desperate to stay alive. And that part is going to keep you keep trying to keep you alive, no matter what else is happening externally or no matter what is happening internally. So there, just because your body is not working very well doesn't mean you lie down and die. What it does mean is that a, one part of your body's agenda says, whatever happens, you have to stay alive. And another part of your body says, well, I don't know how to do that. And, 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 and that's where the, that, that's where an illness that otherwise what could easily be, or potentially easily be resolved. It, so there you were out in the, you were, this is before civil, before urban civilization, you were out there somewhere you, the, who, whichever shaman you had handy to you, knew a few ways to help you get, be, get realigned. But if those ways did not work and you could not reconnect to the life force very well, most likely you, there, there was not a long drawn out period of you, of your body trying to figure out whether it could stay alive or not. Probably in most cases, you simply died because there, were, there was nothing that was supporting you to try to stay alive. Once you got into the city, of course, there were all these other people around you. There were all these, these things that people had accumulated and people could try to things to keep you alive. And then the situation with the, your organism became more complicated because here one thing was going wrong and somebody gave you something to try to it, that didn't quite cure it, but it, but kept you from dying. 
and then something else went wrong. And in, in previously, it was less likely that that kind of thing would happen because there were less specific interventions for all these different kinds of things. If you couldn't get realigned with the life force and nature, you weren't going to survive very long, which is the case with plants and animals out there in the natural environment uh, as it is. If, if, if you become unwell and you can't somehow mm. become not unwell, you're not going to last very long. At the very least, some predator is going to come pick you off. Otherwise, you're just not going, you won't find food and that'll be the end of you. But where you have other people looking out for you, maybe they can't, maybe they're not going to be able to uh, uh, heal your problem, but they can give you things that will keep you from dying. And then, then now you're in that state of, well, I'm not really healthy, but I'm also <laughs> not dead yet. So I'm going to keep kind of moving forward, even though I don't exactly know how. So when Ayurveda started to, people started to spend more time in urban environments, they had to start paying more attention to how to deal with the situation where the person is not really vibrantly healthy, but they're also not dead. And so we wanted, we always want people to go back in the direction of vibrant health. And that's why Ayurveda says, the, the closer you, the more aligned you can live with nature, the closer you can live with nature, the not only your quality of life will be optimal, but also it's much like much more likely that you're going to be as healthy as you can be in in that in any particular context. So the definition of Ayurveda that comes from the most famous text of Ayurveda goes this way in Sanskrit. Hita hitam sukham dukham ayustasya hita hitam manancha tatcha yatraktam ayurvedaha sauchate. And what this means is that Ayurveda has three basic parts to it. Number one is a focus on the study of, the understanding of, what are the things that are going to make you more likely to be well aligned with your environment and your own, your, your external environment and the internal environment of your own self? And what are those things that are going to disturb that for you? Number one. Number two, what are those things that are going to promote the vitality. So number one thing is how are we going to keep your, your, your harmony, your physical, mental, spiritual harmony at this moment? How are you going to promote that harmony? The second, so that's a static analysis. In a more dynamic, uh, uh, from a more dynamic perspective, it's how are you going to create a pattern, a momentum, so that your body is going to is going to to be able to for however long possible to maintain that that state of alignment because all of us have have experienced feeling really good and all of us have experienced feeling really bad and the thing about human life is it is the extremely unusual person who either feels only good 
in their life or feels only bad in their life. Almost always, it's a combination of the two. So our interest is to accentuate the good, the harmonious, and minimize the not so good, the less harmonious. So, so first we're trying to understand what does it mean to even put yourself into, an, into a state of harmony and alignment and balance. Second, how do we generate momentum so your body is going to try as far as possible to keep you in that state? That's a more dynamic approach. And the third thing is, how do we prolong life so that we have not only moments of happiness, but extended periods of happiness that we can experience for an extended period of time. So it's all about life, but it's those three things. The snapshot of health, the extended mm-hmm. momentum, the flow of health, and then, and, and then an extended period of hopefully mom, uh, uh, an, ex, an extended period of extended periods, longer uh, stretches where we are feeling good over an extended period of life. That's interesting because we don't really have a current, uh, we don't have a current definition of health these days, right? We have the absence of preventing, uh, kind of presenting disease, but we don't really go back to say what is health in the positive, right? So what you're suggesting is that they have a definition at that time of a harmony or a sense of equilibrium that, that gives a picture of positive health to kind of accentuate rather than just combating something that's, you know, in, in focus as to get rid of that. There are, there are three most common words in Sanskrit for health. Word number one is arogya, which means absence of disease, which as you rightly observe, is the definition that of disease that modern medicine uses. If you go to your doctor and you don't have anything actively wrong for you with you, she will say, please go away, you are healthy. Even if a disease is about to manifest, she may not be able to identify it because that's not how modern doctors are trained. But that is one, that's one definition of, of, of health. If, if, you, if you don't have a disease, then go out and do stuff because you must be feeling great. So that's, that is a definition of disease. It is somewhat limited. A second definition is a little more specific. And that word is swastia. And that literally means being well established in yourself. And what they mean by that is that when all when you, all of your physiological processes are balanced and aligned with one another, so when your body is running in a nice, efficient way, your engine is well tuned. That's one. That's that's when your body is healthy, and your mind is healthy when you're when 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 you're thinking mind, your emotional mind, your sense organs, when they are all feeling satisfied. And this, of course, is the big problem with human life, not just today, but since the beginning. Very often, desire takes us over. And desire starts to drive us 
in directions that are to, uh, the direction of performing actions, especially consuming substances, that may not benefit the physical body. The physical body just wants to be balanced and healthy. The mind has all these other desires. I want to become extremely famous. I want to stay up for, for uh, an entire week without sleeping. I want to be able to do this and do that. Mm. And, and, and I, I, I want to do not 108 dropbacks. I want to be able to do 324 dropbacks at the same time. So your body is, 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 will naturally try to cope with all of this as best it can. But the, the more desires you have that are not aligned with the capability of your body to experience them in a neutral kind of way, the, the, the more likely it is that you are not going to be able to maintain good uh, uh, alignment within yourself. In fact, the, the chief cause of disease in Ayurveda is said to be allurement. Hmm. You know that word allure? It, it's the same word as a lure. I've been a vegetarian for many years, but when I grew up, I grew up near the Gulf Coast where there is, of course, plenty of, um, plenty of animals, fish and crabs and things living in the water. And uh, I would occasionally go fishing and so many people go fishing. And with often what you do when you go fishing is you take a lure and what that lure does is that it dangles in the water and the fish or the crab or the eel or the whatever it is will see the lure and they will think it is something they can eat and they will go to it. But alas, lo, they, they, they have then been, they have discovered and, and verily it is too late, but they have discovered that what appeared to be something they could eat was something that in fact is going to turn them into food instead. And now we don't have large hooks dangling in in, in our cities and towns everywhere in, the yeah. form, in literal form of hooks, but we have all kinds of lures. We have lures everywhere that are trying, that, that make us think that, ah, this will make me look uh, more beautiful and taller and I will make lots more money and I'll be happier. And so the desire motivates us to move in the direction of these things. And then they grab hold of us and they take our attention, attention meaning prana, prana, attention and breath all move together. And then they drag us away from being well-centered in ourselves. And that's when disease begins. The third definition of disease is the one that is most, uh, I think, most all-encompassing. And that is that health is equivalent to sukha, S-U-K-H-A. And sukha is a word uh, that, like many Sanskrit words, means a lot of different things. It can mean ease. It can mean uh, health. It can mean happiness. But literally, 
it means good space. Mm. So that's when the space, the spaces in your body, your emotional space, even your financial space, when all of these things are in a state of being harmonious, then you can feel like you're actually healthy because there, there is, when there is space, if you want the, if you want air, the prana, the life force to circulate properly, circulation can only happen where there is, there is space in which that circulation can happen. So the opposite of sukha is dukkha, and anyone who has studied Buddhism will recognize that word because Lord Buddha was well renowned for saying. Sarvam dukkham, dukkham sarvam. And often people translate what that word dukkha is misery. Every, everything is misery. All mm. is miserable. But that's, that's and that, and, and, and dukkha can mean misery. But really, in my opinion, and I believe this, uh, many Buddhist scholars have agreed with me on this, dukkha mean, less means uh, Un, unrem, unremitting misery than it means dissatisfaction. Everything mm. is unsatisfying because it is transitory. You 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 win the lottery and you feel great ah, and dopamine surges in you and you and then after five minutes or one day or one year, you feel empty again because it was a temporary thing that made you feel that you now had everything you needed and all was great, but that feeling didn't persist because other desires came up, because, because you, 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 you wanted to get a new bauble and you got your bauble and it was a great bauble for a while, but after a while it was not so great no more. And then you started to think about new baubles and you started to, research them and you started because the previously what you had obtained was no longer as satisfying mm. as it was before. And that's why in, in, in yoga, for example, we have the yamas and the niyamas and the, there are five niyamas and we could argue that all five are very important. But I think in IMO, in the modern world, especially the most important of all five is santosha, because santosha means contentment. That doesn't mean simply lie down and accept things passively, whatever your condition is. It does mean that whatever you possess at any one moment, be contented with it. You may have the, an understanding that you require more of something. And if you do require it, then you should make a reasonable efforts to obtain it. But if you don't require something, why are you desiring it? You should only desire what you require. In an ideal world. Well, and people are going to be saying, well, and I realize that time's pushing on. I've heard of the gunas and the doshas and, you know, like everyone's fascinated with diagnosing their dosha. Where do these come into the whole picture? Well, I would say there, there are there are two th two things to think in the in this context. Number one is 
th the doshas are certainly important, but Ayurveda cannot be equated with the study of the doshas. Of course, it's easy for that to happen nowadays. Why is it easy? It's easy because we live in a very speedy world. And in order to move fast on anything, you have to move superficially. If you're going to plow mm. something, I watched somebody last month plowing in a field with a team of workhorses, which of course you almost never see nowadays. But, but that you got into a rhythm and there were the horses working and so on. But that's very slow business. And even after a couple of hours, not that much had been plowed. If you're going to fly in the air, though, you can go at, at five or 600 miles an hour. If you're going to fly off into space and you want to go beyond Earth gravity, you have to fly at 25,000 miles an hour. So the, 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 the more that you want, the faster that you are going to be able to move, the further away from connection to the earth element you become. We're now in a situation where, of course, people are very much divorced from the earth element. You are there in the UK. I am here in the US. We are interacting with one another, but we're interacting in a very, very subtle kind of way. We're, acting, we're interacting with just a bunch of mm -hmm. electrons that have been configured in a certain way that are being, that are being bounced from continent to continent by big undersea cables even though it gives us the impression that we are actually uh, in, in a similar space, doing similar things as humans always did before. In the past, if you wanted to communicate, you needed to be near one another. So we have the semblance of being near. The fact that we can do it is because things have become very, very rarefied. So you can move very fast when things are rarefied. Of course, when you do that, then you tend to move away from the, your physical body, because your physical body cannot, I, I can connect to you in, in the UK very easily this way. For my physical body to get to the UK, it requires me, it requires a lot, something a lot more. So when, when people, for example, then try to understand Ayurveda, here, this is a, a system that has a lot of moving parts to it, and it has and it has its own history, starting off with shamanism, moving to a, a, a a, a classical kind of approach, and now uh, evolving along with the, the way the rest of civilization and the human species is evolving. So it's easy for people to get focused on the concept of the doshas, and they're important concepts. But if you focus only on that concept, then you start to then you start to crystallize meanings in those things that are not necessarily there. And also, there it, it's not difficult for you to start to use them in ways they should not be used. Like, for example, I am a very pitta person, therefore, and pitta people are always angry. Therefore, I must be an angry person. And if I'm shouting at you, it is yeah. just because it is my natural nature. So you should yeah. feel good about that. You should feel happy that I am expressing what I need to express because I am a pitta person, which is the kind of thing a pitta person would say because they are always trying to justify their attempt to uh, 
um, to, 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 for supremacy over everybody in their neighborhood. So it, I think it's much better to understand that what we want to do absolutely is understand ourselves. And the doshas can be useful tools for this as long as you only make them tools and you don't turn them into hashtags that you then that you try to apply that are not in that that are that are not actually reflecting what the reality is. So how that how that works is if if I would pref I prefer to simplify things in a different way because people are so get, have gotten so they've grabbed hold of the concept of the mm. doshas and they have now they have now taken out a lot of what of the meat in the concept and they have taken the skin of the concept and they packaged the skin up very nicely and they have created uh, dosha food stuffs and dosha soaps and dosha processes and so on. But, uh, and it is important to be able to know what's going on inside you. But I, pr I prefer nowadays, uh, currently, I mean, one's opinion can always change, but currently I prefer to have people think in terms of six main qualities. Ayurveda is a qualitative medical system. That means that quantity is important, but quantity is important only in terms of quality. And there are all kinds of qualities. Is this thing poisonous or is it medicinal or is it nutritive? Is it going to, is it going to speed up my heart? Is it going to slow down my digestion? These are things that we, uh, we're paying attention to always in the world, but often we are not paying attention passively or, 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 or unconsciously instead of consciously and actively. So there are really six qualities that are the most important. Number one quality is hot and it's, its opposite, which are cold. And hot and cold for every human are relative. Some people, when it is a certain temperature, are taking off layers. Other people are adding layers. And some people find my mother, even though she was a, a nice old white lady living in Texas, um, she was extremely fond of very hot food. <laughs> and when she visited me in India, she would eat the food and say, very politely, she was a very polite Texas lady, Oh, that's very tasty. But if you could just bring me some raw onions and some raw green chilies, <laughs> that would taste much better. And uniformly, every everybody in in every house and every restaurant we ate in was amazed that she could eat such intensely hot food. I can't eat that kind of hot food, but she could do it. Why was that? Because her organism had adapted to and appreciated that kind of food. My organism would not appreciate that. So the question of hot versus cooling, that applies not just to the, in, the external climate, it applies to the kind of foods we eat, it applies to the kind of mm -hmm. medicines we take. So that, that, that pair of qualities, that continuum, that spectrum from the, in, oh, the heat of the sun and the cold of absolute zero, this is a spectrum, mm. the hot and cold spectrum. Is it, is it conditional? Is it, condi is it completely conditional of the person? Or, or can you give basic examples of like yogurt's cooling and, and, and beef is heating or, you know, right? Ab 
Absolutely. Now, it's unfortunately, even those things are not completely, are not quite that simple. But we can certainly say, for example, that a ultimately, for most people, a chili pepper is hot. And ultimately, for most people, coconut water is cooling. Ultimately. For most, there's always <laughs> going to be some, ex uh, some exception. But for most people, coconut water is going to be cooling. The pro and for most people, um, cilantro, coconut, uh, coriander leaf is cooling. You may hate it because <laughs> coriander is one of those things you either hate or you love. You may hate it or you may love it, but for most people, it will have a cooling effect. And for most people, garlic will have a heating effect. Garlic it can be very therapeutic for some people. Garlic can be very... I can't eat garlic anymore. I could when I was younger. But now it irritates my system immediately. So it's very important for everyone to know what works for you. So you will look in books and you will look on the internet and you'll see, oh, these are all the foods that are good for Vata. Therefore, I must yes, never yes. take these foods and I must always mm -hmm. take these foods. But what that means is not that at all. Stop right there. <laughs> Wait. And instead, what that means is most likely those foods that are in the no column will not be that great for you. And most likely the foods in the S yes column will be. But in your particular situation, that may not be true. So you need to evaluate for yourself what each one of those things is going to do. And how are you going to do that? By trying them out and paying attention to what your body is telling you. Nowadays, most people do not pay attention to what their bodies are saying because they don't ever pay attention to their bodies. Mm. They are always focused externally. They are always, if not, and it used to be, they were focused externally in the city looking at what was happening. Now they're focused externally on the screen and the screen has mesmerized them and all their attention is going into the screen and they don't even know whether they've eaten or the last time they slept. And literally, I mean, you, there, there are cases of, of young people dying because they have abandoned everything in order to be plugged into the screen. So to, if, in order to be healthy, you have to have an alignment with your own organism. And in order for that, you have to know what is good for your organism and what is not. So Pitta fundamentally is the question of whether uh, the uh, Pitta represents the, all of the digestive processes in the organism. Digestion in the gut, digestion in the brain, which means taking sense object, uh, sense data and turning it into a representation of reality that we can use to negotiate the world. And Pitta, so Pitta tends to be hot. There are there is a variety of pitta where it it manifests in a in ways that are not that don't appear to be hot, but most of the time, something that is a pitta type condition is is hot. It's an inflammation. It's it's a it's a it's 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 an overheating of some kind. Anger is pitta in the mind. Uh, inflammation is pitta in the body. And most of the time, what we want to do is 
decrease the pitta by adding things that are cooling to it. Normally for heat, you apply something cool. But of course, if you apply too much coolingness, then the, the digestive fire will go down and then you will have a different problem going on. If you apply things that are cooling, but very too moist and wet, then what will happen is your body will become more, that more things, more mass will accumulate in your body than is desirable. And then <clears throat> you will create a different imbalance for yourself. So we always want to evaluate in ourselves whether we have a tendency to heat or a tendency to cool. If you have a tendency to heat and certain organs may have a tendency to overheat and other organs may not. So those organs, those systems, those parts of yourself that have a tendency to overheat will have the uh, too much mm. pitta. In what way, etc. This is more complicated, but pitta represents heat. So we're always a, a combination of all three doshas, essentially. There's always a combination of all three. Vata represents too much dry, and kapha represents too much heavy. So these are the three things we're looking at: hot, dry, and heavy, and we balance them by their opposites: cool, wet. And water, remember, is not wet. If you apply a lot of water to your skin, it'll dry out. Wet means oil, ghee, fat, stuff like that. And it, so we have pitta, which is hot, and we balance it out with cool. We have uh, vata, which is dry. We balance that out with moist, and that means the moist of, of fat, preferably, but also being well hydrated. And then we have kappa, which is heavy, and we balance that out with light. So, yes, you can. You can, you can go online and you can take these uh, tests and you can <laughs> get some reasonable idea of what, you, what kind of dosha is predominant in you. But don't try to get all this all complex about things. If you've discovered that vata is predominant in you, the main things you need to do is is be applying, doing self-massage, making sure you get the appropriate amount of very high quality fat in your diet and provide and, 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 and emotionally make sure that you are, are not blocking affection, neither front, neither directed at yourself that with all this weird self-hatred and so on there should be you should appreciate and love yourself and 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 be happy that you're alive because while there is life there is absolute hope that you can move in a different direction that you than you had moved before and you have to understand as a vata person that your energy is always going to fluctuate and therefore you need to be doing things that are balanced and focused, and that are going to—that's going to keep your energy in in a more in a, in a, in a better conditioned and more regular sort of uh, a pattern. If you're a pitta person, you're always going to be hot. That doesn't mean that you will be hot 24 hours a day. That means there will always be a tendency to heat in your system. 
So there always has to be a focus on finding ways to cool yourself down. And that means sometimes that will be cooling of the body and sometimes that will be cooling of the mind. And, and the problem with general problem with Pitta people is they tend to overdo things and burn out. And it's, it's much better not to burn out because when you do burn out, that means you're not going to have that same fire that you had. And now your energy is not going to be consistent. It's going to go to the Vata energy. It's going to become inconsistent. And then you're going to have the problem of your body is going to, going to still try to want to burn through, to, to, to gallop through things, but you won't be able to do it anymore because your energy won't be mm. as focused, regular, and consistent as it was. And then you're going to become frustrated, and then you're going to become angry, and then you're going to waste all of your energy in that, which is not going to look good for you. And it's going to make other people upset also. And Kappa is energy that is very solid. If you want to understand Kappa, look at an elephant. They're, they're very solid. It takes, they, they move slowly, they think slowly. And it takes quite a bit to get an elephant upset. But once the elephant is upset, you would do well to get out of the elephant's way because then the elephant becomes very upset. And cup of people are like this. It takes their gen genial, easygoing, until they get irritated enough. And then they will grab hold of whatever it was that irritated them. And they will gnaw on it and stamp on it and worry it and and throw it to the side. And then but they won't then then they will not forget. They will continue moving forward, dragging that along with them. And the cup of people therefore tend to they 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 tend to they tend to have consistent energy, but they do not always know when to start, and they do not always know when to stop. So the the best if a person really has and and a lot of people get confused and think that oh, I I have uh, I have all this extra fat on me. I must be mm, a cup of mm. person. The answer to that is no very uh it is that that unless you have broad shoulders or and or broad hips unless you have really solid bones unless you're built on the on the plan of a an elephant or a a, a bull or a cow or a rhinoceros or something a big you unless you're a a a, a sizable frame then that you don't have cuppa. You just have an accumulation of fat, which probably your body has accumulated to try to balance out all of your hmm. vata. So this is why it's, it's, in my opinion, dangerous for people to grab hold of some concept and then start to draw conclusions on the basis of that one concept when in fact that one concept is just one concept. It is just one 
it's 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 one factor out of several factors that have to be examined. And if you don't, if you if you try just to use one factor, then you're not going to get very far in understanding yourself well enough to 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 put you yourself in a genuine healthy balance with your environment. I suppose I'd like to ask you perhaps one or two final questions, and one of them is. There's constant criticism of Ayurveda these days as using all this dairy and all this, you know, this kind of the milks and the geese, and this is one reason why people crit- criticize it. What's your answer to that? Well, they're criticizing it because they feel that um, animals are not ethically uh, cared for and therefore one should not employ but also just the fact that you you hear this idea that dairy's bad for you you know mucus forming um etc well i mean dairy is definitely mucus forming in the form that we have it because uh, my one of my father's brother for many years had a dairy and um we would go and um uh get the milk to drink for ourselves just after it had been uh, milked. And milk, when it comes right out of the cow, is, or the bull, or the, or the goat, or the sheep, or whatever, is, is, number one, it is warm, because it has come out of the animal at the temperature of the animal. So, and that's the temperature at which milk is supposed to be consumed. It's supposed to be consumed at that temperature, because that's how it's it's produced. But instead of that, it is then chilled, and then it is kept cold, and then people take it out and they drink it cold, and they drink it in a cold environment, and they drink it when their digestive fire is not strong, and they drink it by mixing it with things, other things that are cold, like cold uh, breakfast cereal, and so. Now it's the milk itself has a cold quality to it, which is not bad. But if you take that cold quality and you add cold Mm. temperature and you add mixing with other cold things, then now you have a lot of cold and you will definitely then be adding cold to your system. But if you take milk and you heat it up, and you add in warming spices like cinnamon and cardamom and clove and maybe a little bit of ginger and other stuff too. And you drink it that way, that is going to have a very different effect on you than drinking a cold glass of homogenized milk in the middle of the night with a dead bagel. By dead, I mean it was, you know, baked like a week ago and and you forgot it in your in your cupboard and then you could didn't know what else to eat and lo there it is and you got that um uh, because you were hungry in the middle of the night when you should not have been eating in the first place when you do all of those things yes absolutely dairy is going to cause you to um accumulate cold and get congested but what you're doing is you're blaming dairy when in fact you should be blaming yourself. And cheese absolutely is going to cause congestion. There is no question. 
why does cheese exist? Cheese exists because there was people need had all of this milk at one point and they were thinking, okay, well, we can convert some of it into yogurt, but what are we going to do with the rest of it? Because that, and we would like to have some food later in the year when we don't have any food. People nowadays don't recognize, do not realize that even even a hundred years ago, you did not have the op- option in most of the world, most of the time, you did not have the option to have food available to you 24 hours a day. It was just not, it, it was just not there. You could, you could have, because there was no refrigeration, there was no, um, there, there was no uh, uh, international association of transport mechanisms that permitted things to go from here to there and hither to yon and thither to hither. Um, uh, transporting things that uh, were seasonable, seasonal in one part of the world and not at all in season mm. elsewhere. So in the past, people had to pay, there was in every climate, there's always a time when there is not really uh, food available in the environment. In the tropics, it's usually the hot season. In the high latitudes, like in the UK, it's usually the winter. If if you have snow on the ground and all of the animals are uh, hibernating, except the ones that are too fast for you to catch, you you hope very much that you have something back at home that you prepared for yourself and you preserved that you can eat then because otherwise you're going to be spending the winter pretty hungry and it that's you're going to burn through a lot of fat because in order to stay warm you have to be generating calories out of yourself so the 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 problem is that we have cheese and there's there's nothing inherently wrong with anything um and and if you eat cheese and you understand that cheese should be uh, preferably cooked uh, in into something, and by doing that, that makes it more digestible. And instead of eating one pound of cheese at a time, you eat a smaller amount of cheese at a time. So the 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 poison is in the dose. One pound of cheese is poisonous. One ounce of cheese, quite likely, is going to be digestible because it's all a matter of how your digestive fire works. So. In, in a case like, and certainly soft, fresh cheese is going to be a lot more digestible than something that has been aged for 50 years. That's going to be uh, interesting uh, sociologically, but it is not going to be good for you to be eating 50-year-old cheese. So it, rather than just thinking of dairy products as being horrible things that are mucus-forming, which they are when you employ them wrong, is it's much better to be thinking of dairy products as something that has a substantial potential to increase uh, congestion and mucus, et cetera, unless we do something to, to, to antidote those qualities, to attenuate the negative qualities and bring out the better qualities. And that that's why... It, the understanding the qualities of things is so important. Many people are very excited nowadays about the 
uh, anti-aging possibilities, and therefore they're taking supplements by the handfuls. I mean, there are people who take 100, 150 supplement pills a day. <laughs> Without thinking about the fact that your liver can only process a certain amount of abnormal and by abnormal, I, I mean things that are not natural to it. It can only process a certain amount before it starts to become not so functional itself. So when you're taking a lot of sup when you're taking 150 supplements a day, you're putting a big strain on your liver, which has a bunch of other work to do in your body. So it, it, excess is always going to create difficulty, whether it's excessive mm -hmm. eating or excessive not eating, whether it's, it's excessive running after being healthy and trying to do yoga uh, three hours a day when you're also holding down a, a, an eight hour a day job and you have to commute. And But no, every waking moment that I'm not doing that, I will be doing, you know, my, my series. That's not going to that that's that's not going to serve you well in the long run because you're doing too much more than your organism can 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 endure you have to recognize that especially nowadays organisms are limited in what they can they they can they can endure and we're being bombarded by so much stuff that that it's very important that you spend some time every day just trying to get a feel for how much you can take in that day, how much you can deal with that day, and just do that much because that's all that you can digest. And digestion is the most important thing. What you eat is not important. What you digest out of that is mm -hmm. what is important. And out of that, what you assimilate is important. And out of that, what you actually utilize is really what's the most important, most essential thing. It seems like everything needs to be can kind of qualified and, and there's so many conditions to it. Just to round this off, I mean, is there anything that one can take and apply practically in daily life as a basic principle without, I mean, a lot of it seems to be kind of common sense, but particular to the individual. But if you don't have a, an awareness, if you're one of those people that doesn't you know, have any sense of body awareness and you don't feel things are going so good, but you would like them to evidently, what, you know, are there any basic criterions that you could say, do this, do that? But the basic, the absolute basic thing is if you do not have any body awareness, you should Grab hold. Well, it of begs some. the question, doesn't it? And no, you cannot go. You can, but but the the reality is that body awareness is present in every human being all the time. It's not that you have no body awareness. What you don't have is awareness that you have body awareness. Your body there the the there are if the if you have are you, are you familiar with the word interoception? No. <laughs> So uh, it that means exactly what it says. Intero means internal, and and there's two, it's like pro proprioception is part of that. So so there are systems that are paying attention to what's going on inside you all the time. What you're doing is 
not paying attention to those. Now, can we blame those systems for you not paying attention to them? That seems a little unreasonable to me. So this is why, first of all, the, the best thing that everybody can do, no matter what, is pay attention to your breathing because that's something you're doing several times a minute, whether you like it or not. And thank God you're doing it um, with your autonomic, your automatic nervous system. Otherwise, um, it, who knows whether even the species would exist anymore because people would have held their breath and killed over dead. So you're breathing whether you like it or not. You need to recognize the fact that breath is really important and you just start off just by paying attention to breathing as slowly as you can, as calmly as you can, as regularly as you can, and as deep as you can. Most people do not breathe abdominally. There is only one muscle of breathing and that is your diaphragm. Most people are trying to breathe up here with their intercostal muscles, and that's not the job of the intercostal muscles. The diaphragm is a massive muscle, uh, the biggest muscle in the body, and its job is to move downward to create a relative vacuum in the lungs to suck air into your lungs. And when it moves back upward, it pushes air out of your lungs. So you need to be able to under to, to breathe abdominally. If you don't know how, that's why we have the internet. There, there's some method or another you're gonna be able to grab hold of that is going to help you to breathe abdominally. That's number one. So once you're now breathing properly, now the, the, the first thing to do, if you're really serious about this, is to simplify your diet. You can occasionally eat complicated food. There's nothing wrong with that occasionally. But on a daily basis, you need to be eating simple food. What does that mean for you? That is going to mean whatever that means to you. But it does definitely mean that food, the food you eat should be food that your great-grandmother would have been able to identify as food. <laughs> that means it should not come in a box with a hundred different ingredients. It should be, you should go into the, your local food market and it should look like food. It should be a root or a fruit, or it should be an accumulation of grain, or it should be an actual piece of meat or fish, it should be something that has not been processed and chemicalized and first take all of that out of your diet. And most of the time, fried food is not such a great idea. There are plenty of ways to cook food that are not fried. If, you're, if you try to tell me that you have no time to cook because you're a busy person, number one, I don't, not going to believe that you're busy 24 hours a day. And if you are, you'd better stop now because you're going to burn yourself out. And then you're going to have plenty of time to repent while you're lying down, unable to do anything. Number two, if you're still going to tell me that you don't have time, and, and I believe that there, you could easily have, you will not have time to make a four-course four course meal every day. 
And yes, you may have you very that your three children may be beating one another up and you have to go in and drag them apart from one another. I understand that for sure. But that's why we have the slow cooker. Go out and get yourself a slow cooker and put it on your counter and plug it in and then put a bunch of real food, grains and beans and fruits and vegetables and so on, in, and some spices into the slow cooker and turn it on and forget it until two or four or six or eight hours later and then open it up and eat it. <laughs> then you're eating real food. You didn't have to slave over the stove. You did have to fill the cooker, but that doesn't take that long. And you had to plug it in, which takes almost no time at all, and turn it on. So you can now have reasonably good food with a minimum amount of preparation time, and it that will make a big difference. So breathing correctly, eating correctly, and sleeping adequately and correctly. No, you cannot sleep in a room in which there are a bunch of bright lights, especially blue lights, because that is not that the normally we see blue in the sky. And that means it's daylight. And that means our bodies think we need to be active. Get the blue light, get any kind of bright light out of your their bedroom, but especially blue light. When you go to bed, go to bed. Do not read, do not have your phone with you, do not be watching TV. Turn the phone to off, unless you have an aged parent who might be calling you in the middle of the night. Otherwise, or you have a, a child who has just gone off to college or something like that. You don't need to know what's going on during the night. Turn off the phone. Put it somewhere other than where you are, so you're not tempted to pick it up and, and scroll through it during the night. Sleep, the time for sleep is night. And when you're sleeping, that's what you should be doing. If you, if you spend all of your time before sleep connecting to something else, that's what your brain is going to be trying to, doing, to do instead of sleeping. So if, and that, that's, so that's mm. three things, mm. breathing, eating properly, sleeping. The fourth thing is exercising. Move your body around every day for at least half an hour, even if it is just going out and walking. Yes, I know that very frequently. I have been to the UK many times, and it is a beautiful island, which is lush and green, and it is lush and green because there is plenty of precipitation. I understand that. Cleverly, you Brits have figured out good ways to deal with this. There is the umbrella. There is this, the rain slicker. There are so many methods for being able to deal with precipitation. I salute you all for that. Use them and get out. And I understand, especially when it's chilly and it is the middle of February and it is dark, there is a, a reduced incentive to go out. But your body will appreciate it. And if your body does not move around, your circulation is not going to work properly. And if your circulation does not work properly, then you're not going to be getting the toxins out of your tissues that need to be thrown out of the body. And you're not going to get the nutrients and the oxygen into your tissues that need to get there. And then you're going to blame your body when your poor body is doing its best to do everything and you are going to be the only person you're going to be able to blame. You will try to blame others, <laughs> but we will not accept that. 
Well, very, very wise words from Robert. And um, we started with him at seven in the morning, so I think we're going to give him a rest now. Uh, you wouldn't believe you wouldn't believe Thank that you. for, for the, uh, <laughs> the quantity and quality of his chat. So um, thank you, Robert, for, for joining us today. Adam, it's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm.